Communication is not trivial. It is a powerful catalyst, turning thought into progress. It allows us to discuss, grow, and change together as a society. And I know what it takes to overcome those barriers. Oregon is a cold and moody lover that only sometimes shows you a soft side. My research asks simple questions. Why did this idea emerge? And what would it take to implement it? I can put my energy into my science and into my family instead of just barely surviving. I'd also like to request that my story not be shared without this end portion. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for a special episode of Inspiration Dissemination. This is our annual Grad Inspire event originally recorded in the Memorial Union Ballroom on March 2nd, 2020. If you enjoy these stories, consider looking back through our timeline for our GradX episodes from February 2019 and April 2018. We hope you'll join us next year. I'm Philip Mote. I'm the Dean of the Graduate School. Uh, I've been in this job for just a hair over a year. It's been a great pleasure uh, getting to know graduate students and their fantastic work here on campus. And that's what we're here to celebrate tonight. Uh, I know that all of you who are graduate students are hard at work um, advancing your education, uh, pursuing knowledge and skills that will carry you out into interesting jobs. Um, and we'd love to be able to celebrate all of you. Um, tonight we've picked six uh, to feature and hear a little bit more about their journey. And um, I was asked to just share briefly about my journey. I was a graduate student. I, was, I realized I was a graduate student back in the first Bush administration. That really, I mean, most of you probably can't even remember the guy. Um, Things were different then, uh, but I really appreciated the um, uh, tight community that I had with my cohort, um, the, the fantastic professors that I had. I studied atmospheric sciences at University of Washington, uh, and I particularly liked to go up on the roof with other students and just look at the weather and then look at the weather instruments and you know geek out on equipment. Some of you I know go out into the field. Some of you spend a lot of time in labs. I spent all my time in front of a computer analyzing data that other people generated. Uh, and sometimes I envied colleagues who, who would go out. I had one uh, fellow student, though, who spent six months in Antarctica during the winter climbing a mast to tend some equipment. That sounded truly uh, miserable. Um, so. <laughs> I was glad to be sitting in a warm office. Anyway, um, we're here to hear from your colleagues, and I want to introduce our MC for tonight, Heather Forsyth. Hello, and welcome graduate students and supporters of graduate students to the third annual Grad Inspire Ideas in Action, formerly known as Grad X. We're so excited to be here with you tonight. My name is Heather Forsyth, and I'm a PhD candidate in biochemistry and biophysics, and I am also a senior host of KBVR's radio show, blog, and podcast, Inspiration Dissemination. I will be your host for this evening. Before we get started, Grad Inspire would like to acknowledge that Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon, is located within the traditional homelands of the Mary's River or Ampine Fu Band of Kalapuya. 
Following the Willamette Valley Treaty of 1855, Kalapuya people were forcibly removed to reservations in Western Oregon. Today, living descendants of these people are a part of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde Community of Oregon and the Confederated Tribes of the Silets Indians. Grad Inspire is sponsored by the Graduate School and Inspiration Dissemination, or ID. ID is hosted by OSU graduate students about OSU grad students. ID provides a platform to talk about the struggles and triumphs of research and individuals' unique backgrounds while sharing the exceptional research happening across disciplines at OSU with the larger community it resides within. Thank you to the Graduate School for helping us organize the details of this event, and huge thank you to Block 15 for their awesome donation. Yeah. Makes for a more lively crowd, I think. I also, I mentioned before that it used to be called Grad X. So we used to, we've had these letters for the past three years and there used to be a tiny X and then we changed the name to Grad Inspire. And I was at Block 15 actually at another public research talk event when I ran into Nick Bira, who is a PhD student here at OSU in robotics and uh, basically asked him if he would build a giant light bulb. And he did. And uh, yeah. So I want to thank Nick Bira and also Grace Dietzler, who's a PhD student here in microbiology, for the work they put into this light bulb and bringing it here for us to use for this event. Thank you, guys. We've all been working on this event since October when we first selected the, fir the six speakers you will hear from tonight. Over the past five months, these stories have been in development with each of our ID hosts helping guide these incredible graduate students to craft truly inspiring talks. Thank you, all to our, thank you to all of our presenters and to our ID hosts for putting in the time to make this event happen. It is such a joy and privilege to work with and get to know such talented and creative researchers and communicators. The students featured on stage tonight are from across different academic colleges and disciplines here at Oregon State University. They have come to OSU from all over the country and have traveled all around the world in pursuit of their work and academic and personal growth. They have overcome seemingly insurmountable mental and physical challenges to make it to this stage tonight, and every single one of them is a student, researcher, mentor, friend, and member of our community. I hope that you find their stories inspiring. We're starting off the evening with Ashley Ellenson. Ashley is a PhD candidate in civil engineering. Her advisor is Dr. Greg Wilson, and her inspiration dissemination mentors were Daniel Watkins and Lori Lutz. Please welcome Ashley Ellenson. Surfing is a really freeing feeling. Here I'm in Baja, California, with an open wave face ahead of me and being pushed along by the power of the ocean. These are probably the moments of surfing that you've seen most often, the fun and beautiful parts. What you've probably seen less of is all of the moments of frustration and hard work that goes into these moments of triumph. It's like watching a PhD defense and not realizing all the years worth of tedious work that have gone into the small details, much like my own PhD. I'm a PhD candidate, and I've had my own fair share of challenges. Challenges like these. 
In surfing, any time you try something new, you risk the chance of falling. And to add insult to injury, you might get violently held under the water by the wave. We call this getting ragdolled or laundry machined. Today I want to tell you about these moments during my PhD, how I've grown from them, and how surfing has helped me all along the way. I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and I was a beach lifeguard during the summers. That's when I learned how to surf. During college at Columbia in New York City, I would take my surfboard on the subway train and travel the hour and a half from, upper, from the Upper West Side down to Rockaway Beach in order to get in the water. After I graduated, I moved to Hawaii so I could keep surfing. You can imagine my excitement when I realized there was a coastal engineering degree, a way I could formalize an experiential education. So I applied and got into the program here at OSU, and I got offered a funded position, so I took it. When I moved to Oregon, I started surfing here, and I had to get used to how different of an ocean it is. If Hawaii is firm, but warm and playful, Oregon is a cold and moody lover that only sometimes shows you a soft side. <laughs> In Hawaii, the fun waves are predictable and the paddle out is easy. In Oregon, the fun waves seem elusive and the paddle out can seem impossible with infinite currents. There are a lot of reasons for this and I'm gonna explain two today. The first has to do with how waves are generated and travel across the open ocean. We call this deep deep water waves and wave dispersion, and it's the type of information that seafaring vessels would care about. The second part has to do with what happens when those waves reach, get closer to the coast and transform and break. Those are shallow water waves, and that's, this is the type of information that coastal communities would care about to predict erosion. So imagine a storm over the sea with the wind howling over crashing wave crests. Energy is being transferred from the wind into the water and generating waves. The waves then travel away from the storm. You can think of wave travel like a marathon, where the start of the marathon is the storm and the waves are the runners. At the beginning of the race, all of the runners, fast and slow, are mixed together. As the race begins, the slower runners move to the back, and the elite, faster runners group towards the front in what we call wave groups. Because Hawaii is, is not in the direct path of the storms, it gets to see the waves towards the end of the race, when they're already organized from fast to slow. But Oregon gets constantly hit by waves, so it'll see the waves anywhere from the beginning to the end of the race, so the waves can be really disorganized. A perfect surf day is when the surfers get to greet the waves at the end of the race, after they've been organized. And the challenge in Oregon is figuring out when those days will be. So after the waves have traveled all the way across the Pacific, they start reaching shallower water as they get closer to land. And they start to feel the bottom. Eventually, it begins to get so shallow that the waves break. You can think of the bottom as actually pushing the water and the waves up. And the way the bottom is shaped will determine how the wave is pushed up. If the bottom is shaped like a step, then the wave will rise suddenly and break quickly. And if the bottom is shaped like a ramp, like a wheelchair access ramp, then the wave will rise gradually and it'll break slowly. 
So in Hawaii, the bottom's made out of reef. So that means the way the wave rises and breaks is really predictable. And for a surfer who's reading the wave to drop in, it makes it easy to know when and where to drop in. But in Oregon, the bottom is made out of sand and it's constantly changing. So that makes it really unpredictable to know when and where the wave is gonna break and really tricky as a surfer to read the waves. Figuring out when and where a wave is gonna break is a surfer's ultimate mission because then you can maximize the number of good surf days you can get. I wanted to maximize those good surf days for surfers in Oregon because we typically live in the valley and have to gamble as to whether or not it's good enough to make it out to the coast. During my masters, I worked on part one of what I explained, wave generation and travel. I thought I could do a better job predicting waves than the surf forecasting tools that are already out there, so I worked with the business incubator downtown to develop a surf app. I called it Rip Rap the Surf App. <laughs> Being a woman in the business incubator was a challenge in its own self, and it's a story for another day. So I started getting some success with the surf forecasting tool, and I even had interviews with NPR and Surfer Magazine. I was just finishing my master's degree, publishing my first paper, and then there was an opportunity to get a PhD in part two of what I explained, researching sandbar evolution. I decided to stay and get a PhD. The first step to getting your PhD is qualifying for it by taking your qualifying exams. I remember the day of my qualifying exams, I had actually scheduled, I had actually planned a party to celebrate that I had passed, but that party turned into a pity party when I had to tell everybody that I had failed. I felt horrible and really ashamed. I was gonna get a chance to try again, but I'd have to wait a full year. I had also broken my ankle earlier that year, and I realized that I couldn't start a business and be a PhD student at the same time, so I had to let the surf forecasting app go. You could say I had fallen off of the wave of success of my master's degree, and I was just beginning to get ragdolled by the PhD. The next wave to hit me was the wave of my fruitlessness of my research. The very first step in my new research project was to simulate sandbars moving. Well, I tried for a full year to get the right results. I tried so many different environmental scenarios and I didn't, I didn't get what we were looking for. With each failed attempt, I, the confidence in myself and in my research ability eroded. The next wave to hit me after that was the wave of my health challenges. I developed an infection in my gut and it made it really difficult to eat any food. What I thought was basic food made me feel sick and fatigued. I developed insomnia and I also developed food anxiety. I was really obsessed with anything that I was eating and I was scared of getting sick. So in surfing, when getting held under by a wave, the first thing that you wanna do that you can't do is panic. Panicking's the first step to drowning. Because when you panic, you burn all of the oxygen in your lungs, you lose all control of the situation, and so instead, what you have to do is stay calm. Stay calm and focus on the water around you and listen to when it's safe enough for you to try to make it back up to the surface, and then you can reassess the situation and paddle back out. So I wanted to panic. I felt like I was in some sort of purgatory with qualls. I was frustrated by my research and I was confused and scared that my body wasn't functioning the way it's supposed to. But I couldn't panic, so I listened to the challenges around me and I had to adapt. 
The first thing I had to do was take care of my health. I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge the Graduate Student Union in the amazing healthcare we get as graduate students because that allowed me to see all kinds of specialists and ultimately heal. I was put on a diet that restricted me from eating gluten, dairy, alcohol, or caffeine. Uh, and I also had to quit socializing as often because social activities often revolve around consuming one of those things. I had to learn how to rest and take time for myself and to let my body heal. Then I had to pass quals. I spent a long time uh, practicing basic calculus skills like derivatives and I also spent long hours in the library with my friend dissecting the material. I passed quals and now I feel like I have a much better understanding of the physical concepts in my field and I'm much better at problem solving. Finally, I had to turn my research around. My advisor and I came to terms with the fact that we wouldn't be able to get the results we were looking for because the model simply wasn't capable of it. So we had to find a new approach. Remember the beach is a really chaotic system, and I thought that using statistical correlations to predict sandbar evolution as opposed to using explicit physical, physical relationships uh, would be better because of all of the uncertainty of the physical dynamics within the system. I'm now using machine learning to predict sandbar behavior from data, and I just published my first paper on machine learning and wave forecasting. Yeah, thanks. So I have a friend who likes to start every session with a wipeout. He says it helps him shake off any fears or nervousness or doubt. He likes to see that, it, that he can get tumbled around, come back up, and it's not that bad. That allows him to go after waves that are bigger and better and ultimately offer more reward. So falling doesn't mean you're failing. It just means you're on your way to your next wave, on your way to another part of your journey. Riprap the surf app is still in the back of my mind and might just be the next wave I take off on after my PhD. And I might fall off of it again, but that's okay because the lessons of perseverance, creative strategy, and patience that I'm learning along the way are making me better at trying, and I know one day I will catch a wave of success. Like this one. Here I'm in Newport, and I am feeling the buttery water beneath my board watching the water texture change with the wind and bobbing weightlessly between the steely blue interface of sky and sea. All through the time of being challenged, I kept surfing. Surfing and all the friends that go along with it reminded me to be happy and how to play. It reminded me that the world is so much bigger than just the, grad, than just the bubble of grad school, even when I was being tormented by the turbulence of life. So find what gives you joy and hang on to it. That can be your light in the dark and a way to find a home within yourself when otherwise you feel lost at sea. Thank you. Everyone wave goodbye to Ashley. Thank you. Um, and say hello to Winston Kennedy. Yeah! Winston, <laughs> it's fine. Winston is a PhD student in kinesiology and master of public health student. His advisor is Dr. Samuel Logan and his inspiration dissemination mentors were Adrian Gallo and Lisa Hildebrand. Uh, yeah. Oh, now. <laughs> 
Hello, hello, hello. Hello. They messed up on my theme music, but that's okay. Um, so before I start, I just want to say, um, just raise your hand, make some noise, stand, whatever you want to do. I just want to acknowledge everyone who pursued education for because they were inspired or motivated. So make some noise, raise your hand. Okay. Okay. That's, that seems like majority of the people in here. So I want you guys to acknowledge that, like myself and the other five people presenting today, we all have stories. And at times we can get blinded by our own stories and we neglect other stories. So as you take in our stories tonight, take some time to take in your pair's stories at some point in time. So with that, I'll dive into my story. So before coming to Oregon State University, I was a practicing physical therapist. Um, I got my doctorate in physical therapy in 2015 from Florida International University. So when people ask me why I come back to school for a PhD, well, people often ask me why I go back to school for a PhD. <laughs> And I don't know, I'm a glutton for punishment, I guess. But um, one of the major motivations came from when I was working in a physical therapy clinic in uh, Miami, Florida. Um, I had a patient, we'll call her Jenny. Um, she was uh, about 50, 60 years old. And when I seen her, she was recovering from a stroke. Um, prior to come seeing me in the clinic, she was coming from, she already been in the ho admitted to the hospital. She'd been to uh, inpatient rehab, that's a subacute setting. So she was familiar with the rehab process. When she came to me, we were working on trying to walk, functional mobility, that means transfers, sitting, getting in and out of bed. Um, but beyond that, we were working on her transition, her transition to a new life. And what that entailed is having a lot of conversations talking about how she was feeling, what she was going through. Um, and one of the major things we were talking about was her transitioning from being a single independent woman to now relying on assistance, assistance she hadn't needed for a long, long time. Um, and with those conversations and with working through rehab, we built a bond, we built a connection. You know, even when she wasn't in the best of moods, I understood why and that understanding helped her to keep working even when she didn't feel like it. So everything was going great until, you know, I went on vacation. You know, people need vacation. And um, so she had to work with a couple other therapists. Um, when I came back, I noticed something had changed. So I, again, like I usually do, I talked to her, so it was going on. She told me when I was gone, she worked with uh, other therapists who said she wasn't doing enough at home. She wasn't trying to get better. Um, she needs to work harder. So that whole rapport we were building kind of left. I lost it. And so what, what that led me to was, was talking to her more and understanding that two kind of things, two things happened. Um, her idea of what she could do outside of rehab and the feasibility of her doing things, physical activity outside of rehab were limited. And she, she now realized that from those interactions with those new providers. Also what I realized, these healthcare professionals, these other therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, people who are supposed to be in charge of her health, her wellness, her well-being, left her, left her in the dust. Instead of lift, li uplifting her, they kind of pushed her down. And that got, that got me thinking. She's experiencing this. Are other people in her situation experiencing? This, these are people with functional mobility issues or people you would call as being disabled. 
And that is what kind of shifted me to where I'm at now. With her, I start, started to think, okay, if she's experiencing this, are other people with disabilities experiencing this? Especially people who are newly transitioning into this identity of being disabled? Are other healthcare professionals realizing that there are barriers to accessing physical, physical activity outside of working with them? How big is this problem? So in about the, the spring of 2016, I started looking into it. And at first, my first thought was, okay, I can open up a facility that is geared towards providing opportunities for people with disabilities to be active, not only to do you know, medical rehabilitation, but just to come and move, you know, because physical activity is a social experience. But then I got to thinking, if this is a problem here in Miami, Florida, what about you know, northern Florida? What about southeast, northeast, all of the United States? So I knew it was a bigger problem than I could grasp, and I needed to examine that more. So that led me to looking into you know, higher education, and that's what led me to OSU. And um, while I'm here, that's my biggest charge, accessibility for people with disabilities in regards to physical activity. And one of my first major projects that I undertook with my advisor, Sam Logan, was looking at attitudes of physical therapists and occupational therapists, people much like myself. And what we were trying to see if their perspectives on disability related to their attitudes toward, towards disability. By perspectives, I mean models of disability. Just show of hands, noise, whatever you want to do, how many of you are familiar with the models of disability? Okay, not all at once, all right. So within health and wellness, there are two models of disability that are pertinent. There's a medical model that says disability resides within the, within the individual and it's something that needs to be cured or fixed. And then there's a social model that says disability is an experience created by society because of exclusive practices like the built environment, social attitudes, and policy. So in, in this, one of my first studies, what we were trying to see if those two perspectives um, predicted attitudes, because in, in my line of research, the theory is attitudes may lead to uh, intentions which can predict behaviors. So if these models tell us about attitudes, those attitudes can tell us about the behaviors, and in my case, of healthcare professionals and how they work with people with disabilities in physical activity context. I know that's a mouthful, I could talk more about it after. Um, so in that study, what we found was as these healthcare professionals, PTs and OTs, as they gained more experience, they shifted more to a medical model of disability, so disabilities within the individual, and their attitudes became less favorable. So think about that. So if you're a healthcare professional and you're working with someone with a disability and you think, what I'm trying to fix is in this individual. For some people, for some mobility issues, there might not be much change. So if you feel like you cannot help change that individual, how much effort will you put into helping that individual? Yeah, I felt that. I felt <laughs> that. Right? So I think my overarching goal is to kind of be able to assess healthcare professionals' perspectives and working with people with disabilities to kind of get an idea of how they work with this population to promote better interactions between the two. And if you're all like me who have been to various healthcare professionals, 
of being a person with a disability, without a disability, we all have some interesting experiences, am I right? All right, yeah. So that is, like I said, that, that was one of the major reasons that led me to coming back to school, but I've always had an affinity for education. Um, I've always had an affinity for people with disabilities, and it's, when I think back about it, it's, it's hard, it was hard to put my finger on it. It could have been because of, I'm a physical therapist, so I've worked with that population a lot. Um, it could have been my year I spent on crutches. I, I was fortunate enough to get a football scholarship at Hampton University. Um, my senior year had a knee injury, left me on crutches for a year. And through that experience, that's when I first, when I think back, I realized, man, it was tough. The university I went to was small and people with disabilities weren't considered. I had to crutch up and down stairs. I fell several times. I had to go up and down stairs to get in my dorm, fell in the shower several times. And it was just, it wasn't a great experience, but that wasn't it. I, it was something more, and it's something I don't really talk about much because before coming to OSU, it was hard for me to conceptualize. The biggest thing is I was raised by someone with a disability. Um, I, my mother, she worked a lot, always working, from the time I was young. Oh. With the red hair, that's my mom. Hard-working, hard-working woman. That's all she did. So when I was a kid, um, it was me and my two sisters. She had a cousin. Um, to me, that's my second mom. She, she's from Trinidad and Tobago, like the rest of my family. I just came back from there. It was a great experience. These pictures are from there. Um, so my cousin's from Trinidad and Tobago, and when she was young, she had a series of health issues. She had issues in school, issues with bullying. So in a developing country in the 60s, there wasn't any, they didn't have any solutions, so she stopped going to school. So when she was in her 20s, she came to live with my mom, and then I was born, and when my mom was working, that's who I was with. It wasn't until I was about seven or eight, I noticed that my second mom, she was different from all the older adults. I didn't think it was better or worse, just different. And I think that's what made me realize that people with disabilities, like all people, are just different and want to be included and not be seen as afterthought. So I think that's what gave me my lens of trying to be an ally for people with disabilities because like people with disabilities, you know, being a black man in America, I know what it's like to be an afterthought and I know what it's like to be excluded and I know what it takes to overcome those barriers. Right, you can clap now for that, that was good. <laughs> <All right. laughs> So that was, that's, I, I feel like that's what led me to work with that population, but there's even more to my story that got me into higher education. Um, like I said, my mom was always working, um, but she was always there by phone, ready to, how's your grades? They're okay, just okay, go get them better. <laughs> um, and to her, education was everything. Go to school, you're sick, you gotta go to school. You don't feel like going to school, go to school, you're getting bullied, you better beat them up and then make sure you get A's. <laughs> um, so I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. Well, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, around the age of uh, 11, I was robbed, um, held up by, uh, by knife, and my mom says that is what prompted us to move to Florida. She was worried about me. It wasn't the best environment. Even when I go back there, most of my family still lives in Boston. 
I see, I see a community that's looking for help that's not getting it. There was a class, I took a health psychology class when I first came to Oregon State University. And the re, there were, I read a review paper that's, that said people's environments, physical and social, has, is directly associated with their health. In my head, I was like, what? Well, I live, I'm pretty sure that's detrimental to my health. And that, that review came out in the 80s, so I'm like, all right, so why wasn't there anyone in my community trying to help us? And when I go back home and I see my nieces in the same community, I'm like, still, it's the same thing. So I think for me, what I try to do is the work I do, like being on this stage, I need to be able to disseminate it, get it out there. So get people galvanized so we can do something. And a lot of that stems from uh, a lot of what my mom instilled in me. And even from young, from moving to Florida, at the age of 16, they all had to leave because of financial reasons. My two moms, my two sisters, they left. Um, and it was just me. And what I did to make friends and build connections was play sports, um, basketball, football. And football worked for me. I got the full scholarship to Hampton University. Um, my first goal was to go to the NFL and make millions of dollars. But I deferred that <laughs> to, nah, but. <laughs> um, uh, I had the knee injury, so, but even prior to that, higher education was in my future. Um, while at Hampton University, I was fortunate to be a McNair Scholar. How many of you guys are familiar with the McNair Scholars Program? Um, yeah, it was a transformative experience. I got to go to Hampton University's HBCU, Historically Black College University. Um, they provide a lot of uh, underrepresented, uh, non-traditional students opportunities to receive education, but there's not a lot of resources. So through the McNair Scholars Program, I was able to go to Virginia Tech and do research at a medical neuropsych institute with two Harvard-trained neuropsychologists. And it was, uh, it was an awesome experience. I was doing things that I didn't think people like me could do. And um, yeah, from there I learned how to tie a tie. I, <laughs> I learned, we, I got free GRE prep. I, I learned how to eat fancy with a knife and fork. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was amazing. And then from there I even thought of switching to clinical psychology, but I had worked so hard to put everything together for physical therapy. I stayed, I stayed in that route. And from there, I went on to PT school and then pushed through, I got a scholarship to go to PT school, got licensed and started working and that got me to, that got me to where I am now, which in, I'm very fortunate and humbled to be here in front of all of you. So that was kind of my story of what got me here. So where I'm hoping to go is is to continue doing things like this, continue doing my research, continue trying to disseminate my research, and continue to create visibility for people like myself, because there are still people like me in my community who don't think research is for them, higher education is for them, because we don't still, today, we don't see people like us doing it. So I think I try my best to take charge and let people know you can do this. You can have dreads, you can wear sweats and a t-shirt and still do quality work. Yeah. So I'm gonna leave you with two things in closing. 
one goal for me is that my nieces, nephews, um, I, that's my first time seeing my nephews, five of them. Um, my sister just had a son. I'm hoping that all of them don't have to go through what I go through, that they know that they can rely on me for support. Even though I'm thousand, a thousand miles away, I tell them all the time, if you need something, call Uncle Winston. I'll make it happen. <laughs> and um, also, my last message is to all of you, that your experiences, your motivations, your inspirations, they guide you on this path to wherever you're going. Sometimes that path may change, but it's okay because you just created a new experience, a new inspiration to guide you on that new path. So embrace it because there's no telling where it'll take you. And thank you. Our next speaker is Meredith Jacobson. Meredith is a master's student in forest ecosystems and sociology. Her advisors are Dr. Reem Hajar and Dr. Emily Jane Davis. Her inspiration dissemination mentors were Heather Forsyth, which is myself, and Chelsea Beheimer. Please welcome Meredith. I could say that one place where things all began was with this John Muir quote. The clearest way into the center of the universe is through a forest wilderness. That is to say, my entry into forestry and environmentalism was through a white man's eyes, as it is for many. Muir's words captured my 18-year-old heart with a sense of wonder for the jagged mountains of the West, having spent my childhood in Maryland. My personal ethics of nature and conservation quickly rooted into whiteness and colonialism, the ground on which forestry is taught in Western academia. Muir's environmentalism says that people must be removed from the wilderness for its protection, that people and nature are separate. But it didn't take me long to learn from fire ecologists that this preservationist environmentalism has wreaked havoc on our ecosystems. The wide open meadows and expansive views of granite cliffs that Muir, quote, discovered and vowed to protect have since darkened with a dense forest canopy now that controlled fires set by humans have ceased. I soon also learned that the Miwok people were forcibly removed from their homelands to create Yosemite National Park. But while I was learning this legacy of dispossession, I was also learning to love and create home in place in the Golden California Hills. When I first began thinking about graduate school, I had just finished two years working for the California Department of Forestry, planning timber harvests and restoration projects on the ancestral lands of the Coast Ohlone people. It was the fall of 2016 and water protectors were gathering in Standing Rock to protest the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, and while I didn't make it to the front lines, that movement inspired me to consider that as a white woman who lives, works, and plays on stolen lands, I'm accountable to my role in this ongoing legacy of colonization. So I could say that two forces have brought me onto my current research path, this love for land 
and this sense of accountability. Disheartened by our public land system's inability to keep up with the increasing pace of wildfire and climate change, I have found hope in a concept called anchor forests. This concept originated with the Intertribal Timber Council, an umbrella organization of tribal foresters across the continent. Anchor forests seek to empower tribes to convene surrounding landowners to collectively, actively manage large regions of forest lands together. This vision, which was developed in the forests of the West, acknowledges that property lines are arbitrary in the face of a large fire. It suggests that long-term partnerships are needed in order to sustain a steady supply of timber to keep sawmills afloat in rural communities. And it proposes that tribes, with their permanence and experience on the landscape, might be our best hope at anchoring a ship sailing stormy seas. In 2016, the Intertribal Timber Council released a pilot study looking at the feasibility of implementing anchor forests in several regions in the state of Washington. One example involved the Yakima Nation, who have a relatively large land base compared to some other tribes, a strong forestry program, and importantly, one of the last remaining sawmills in the area. But the Yakima are affected by the actions of their neighbors, the state of Washington, the US Forest Service, private landowners, all of whom occupy portions of the Yakima's ancestral lands. It's hard to keep a sawmill running when there's not a stable supply of timber coming from those neighbors' lands. And it's hard to maintain a resilient forest within the bounds of a reservation when a fire or beetle outbreak could easily spread across the property line. Implementing an anchor forest would mean all of those neighbors coming together and making long-term commitments to sustainably and actively managing the entire forest across the entire landscape. As a social scientist, I'm interested in what anchor forests mean as governance and as story. While this vision, is, this vision is relatively new, and while it has been implemented, or it has sparked conversation, it has not been implemented fully on the ground. And so my research asks simple questions. Why did this idea emerge? And what would it take to implement it on the scale that it was imagined? These complex, or these simple questions have complex answers. These days, public land agencies often have their hands tied, fearful of lawsuits and objections. We settlers know two ways of living with land, over-exploitation and John Muir's environmentalism. It's almost unfathomable for many to imagine sustainable active management or responsible timber harvest. With Anchor Forest, the Intertribal, Tim the Intertribal Timber Council is seeking to expand the scale on which we're managing lands across larger landscapes and longer timelines. And with Anchor Forest, the Intertribal Timber Council is telling a series of stories about how tribes may be able to help us accomplish all of this, that they are knowledgeable, capable, experienced, and powerful stewards of their lands. Similar stories are showing up in the media where wildfire is waking communities up to the need for new paradigms. I came to OSU to study collaboration as a form of forest governance. The idea is to allow every voice to be heard. But 
In starting this research, I've learned that many non-native people don't see or know how to see tribes as sovereign autonomous nations and instead treat them as another stakeholder in the process. In a research interview, a tribal representative shared with me that sometimes ATV riders as a recreation group and the tribe can be listed in the same breath as equal stakeholders of a national forest. I'll say that again. Thank you. Um, I'll say that again if you didn't hear in the back. Um, ATV riders and the tribe can be seen as holding equal voice over the tribe's ancestral homelands. So it turns out that maybe equity in governance doesn't mean every voice is equal when the terrain of decision making has already been tilted by colonialism, a terrain on which we cannot see native nations or see native people as full and complex individuals. So it's my responsibility as a researcher to make sure I'm co-creating this story with my partners, that it aligns with their perspectives and interests and furthers their work. Equally important is to make sure that I'm not oversimplifying. White researchers like me have been doing that for a long time. The anchor forest story uses broad strokes, suggesting a framework of governance and partnership. But when we take this framework onto the ground, everything is contextual. Every tribe has its own values and culture and a distinct history of colonization affecting the current extent of sovereignty over their ancestral lands. Non-native people tend to overlook all of that. We simplify the story to fit neatly and conveniently into our frame of the world. These simplified stories bleed into cultural stereotypes with real and harmful consequences. I hope to dig deeper in my future research. I wonder if this era of massive wildfires, this era that is busting the myth of John Muir environmentalism, could be our wake-up call. Not only to heed the knowledge of indigenous people, but to give back land and rights. As a non-native person, I can't just take traditional ecological knowledge out of context and expect it to guide the way. This knowledge requires giving autonomy over the land to its original inhabitants to continue upon millennia of cultural practice. As a non-native person, I return to the sense of accountability that brought me here, and I feel compelled to use my voice to take these conversations further in my circles. Often though, I check myself on my intentions, the reasons why I'm doing this work. Tuck and Yang published a paper called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor that profoundly changed the way I see the world and I think it could change you too. When white settlers speak of decolonizing something, usually to refer to some vaguely social justice oriented action, we're diluting the meaning of this word. We're doing just enough to feel good about ourselves, to justify our continued presence on the land, but the land remains colonized. Speak, write, research these tensions all I want. I'm still a settler, and so is Oregon State University. Decolonizing must mean tangibly unsettling the land. Entering the forest must mean confronting all of this.
So I ask myself every day, what am I doing here on Kalapuya land, in graduate school, in a university? I'm asking myself right now, why am I on this stage? These are not my stories to tell. Academia is an oppressive space for so many, where individuals have to constantly promote themselves, get published, conduct research in a certain way under Western schools of knowledge. Even an event like this perpetuates individualism. Although my research partners hold the knowledge, I'm the one that gets to be here on stage. Entering this work means figuring out which are the times when I should be using my voice to bring these issues into the light, and which are the times when I should be stepping away from the mic, taking up less space in conversations that are not for, for me to dominate, or maybe not for me to even enter. So I'll end by sharing a quote from an indigenous botanist, scholar, and writer who I have turned to to help reframe my relationship to place, to the forest. Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer will be speaking on campus next month, or this month, March 16th, and I encourage you to go see her. In her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, she writes, if we are looking for models of self-sustaining communities, we need look no further than to an old growth forest or the old growth cultures they raised in symbiosis with them. Thank you. I would like to now welcome Shauna, Shauna Otto to the stage. Shauna is a PhD candidate in biochemistry and biophysics. Her advisor is Dr. Colin Johnson. Her inspiration dissemination mentors were Adrian Gallo and Kayla Delventhal. Life is precarious. Even just sitting here tonight, your body is working hard to keep you away from equilibrium. Correct too far in either direction, and the results could be catastrophic. Your body's efforts to maintain this delicate balance is called homeostasis. As an example, each time you move, your muscle cells strain and pull against each other, tearing tiny holes in themselves. And if you didn't have a repair mechanism in place, you wouldn't survive. Like most homeostatic processes, this mechanism is uh, handled by proteins, the tiny workhorse molecules of our cells. My dissertation work focuses on how one of these proteins, dysferlin, senses damage to muscle tissue. If you're born with a deficit in dysferlin, your muscle cells can't respond to mechanical stress and you develop muscular dystrophy. Now, how can a protein, basically an inanimate glom of carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, and hydrogen, sense anything? Well, it turns out that there's a huge difference in the calcium concentrations inside and outside of your cell, and it's held back by the cell membrane. If this membrane is compromised, the calcium comes flooding in, and it's this sharp increase that dysferlin responds to. So dysferlin binds the calcium, and then something about it changes. But what? Dysferlin is huge. So our strategy was to break it up into chunks, and starting with this bit here in the beginning. We already had a snapshot of what the protein looked like, but we were more interested in the motions of the protein. So a snapshot just wasn't enough. 
Luckily, here at Oregon State, we have a lovely little instrument called a nuclear magnetic resonance spectrometer that allows us to look at the motions of proteins in exquisite detail. Nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR, first requires a big magnet, a really, really big magnet that you stick your proteins inside of. The nuclei of the atoms in your protein are electrostatic little creatures, so they respond to this magnetic field, giving you an energy difference between two states depending on which way the nuclei are spinning. Turns out that this difference is about the same energy as a radio wave, which means we can use radio waves to excite these nuclei. So we played a jaunty little tune consisting of radio frequency pulses and delays called a pulse sequence. The nuclei sense and bump into each other during this tune, and at the end of the pulse sequence, we stop and listen closely to what the nuclei have to say. Proteins are made up of amino acid building blocks, and each one in dysferlin shows up as a discrete spot on the spectra. Once I know which is which, I can poke the protein, say by changing the calcium concentration, and then watch how each spot behaves. And that's exactly what we did. We slowly took away calcium and watched what each spot did. We mapped this information onto the three-dimensional structure we already knew, and we were able to make some inferences. For example, we know that the top of this molecule remains fairly flexible even under surprisingly high calcium concentrations. And as we take calcium away, the top half of kind of falls apart. So now we know that the very first bit of dysferlin in the presence of calcium goes from being really, really wiggly to just a little bit wiggly. It seems silly and a bit underwhelming, but that's the reality of research, and it's okay. Maybe the small bit I filled in will help somebody in the future figure out how to supplement for the loss of this protein in uh, patients living with muscular dystrophy. Just teeny tiny steps on a long journey towards a better understanding of a bigger picture. Now, tonight isn't just about cool science, it's also about the steps we've taken on our personal journeys. Each of us has somebody who's set us on our path, somebody who's really made an impression. And for me, that was my undergraduate chemistry professor. It was mid-semester, and we were grabbing a bite to eat at the local pub, and he asked if I wanted to volunteer in his lab. I was super flattered, and I jumped at the opportunity. I got to work with proteins for the first time, I got to learn a bit of spectroscopy, dabble with lasers, everything seemed to be going super well. But under the surface, I was tearing myself apart in response to run-of-the-mill stressors. Um, I had had melancholic stretches before, but this was an entirely different beast. I didn't have insurance, but I knew I needed to see a psychiatrist. Um, the one I found left me with a stack of stock worksheets on self-esteem, uh, about a month's worth of Prozac, and a $200 bill that I really couldn't afford. I tried therapy at a low-cost clinic, but it didn't really stick, and I continued to spiral. Um, I started self-harming. I quit my job. I, I sold my car for $500 to pay rent and then was eventually kicked out of my apartment. But I still had keys to lab. So <laughs> I packed my stuff up, shoved it into storage, uh, filled a duffel bag full of clothes and some toiletries, and moved right in. Um, logistically, it was a bit tricky. I pretended to have work to do late into the night. Um, I pretended to just be getting in early when professors would see me uh, headed off to shower in the gym in the mornings. 
I made more than my fair share of, hot, of uh, top ramen on a hot plate, and I resorted to filching food out of the common fridge when I finally overdrew my checking account. The scariest part, though, was when the cleaning crew would come by Thursday evenings, uh, about 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, our lab had a laser table up front with a floor-to-ceiling black curtain enclosure uh, to keep the lasers in and all. And uh, so every Thursday night, I would wake up about 2 o'clock, pack up my sleeping bag, draw those curtains around me, and hide under the table, making myself as small and as quiet as possible. It's heart just beating in my throat. I was terrified that somebody would find me and the jig would be up and I'd have no place to go. It didn't take long for my professor to find out. I posted to MySpace about uh, swapping housework for a place to stay and he put the pieces together. He offered me a camping mat to make my stay more comfortable. Uh, things got weird uh, uh, several months into this arrangement and he started making jokes at lab meeting about how all the work I could get done since I'd be in lab anyways. I called him out privately and he apologized, but our relationship continued to sour and I left research altogether for several years once I found a more permanent place to stay. From there, I bounced around couches, apartments, friendships. I barely scraped through my coursework. I failed human sexuality twice because I couldn't drag myself out of bed to get to class. For some reason, uh, physical chemistry really clicked for me, and that professor took notice and did a bit of probing into my history. Um, and I opened up to him about my struggles and my situation, and he helped get me through the final few terms of my undergraduate. He got me back into research, uh, got me into the master's program as a way to rehab my GPA and as a way to get myself some access to health insurance. I was hopeful for the first time in years that I'd be able to dig myself out of the mess I had made. I saw a psychiatrist for the second time. We went over my history and uh, came out with a tentative diagnosis. It turns out I have a serious deficit in my response to stress in the form of bipolar disorder. With a diagnosis in hand and a treatment plan in place, I was really determined to rock my first term, but I bit off way more than I could chew. I couldn't sustain momentum and I crashed right before finals. My advisor tried to help me triage the damage by petitioning for medical incompletes, but to no avail. I had wrecked my chances before I'd even gotten out the gate. I was able to stay in the program, but my advisor told me in no uncertain terms that this couldn't happen again. I went on to have two good years before I worked up the courage to apply to PhD programs. The internet is rife with advice about most things, and grad apps are no exception. Um, <laughs> they have one thing to say about mentioning mental health issues in your personal statement. Don't, just don't do it. <laughs> so, I was scared of uh, freaking out admissions committees by disclosing my condition, so no explanation for my all-over-the-place transcripts made it into my application package. So, unsurprisingly, I only got one interview. <laughs> I'm really happy that Oregon State thought I was worth the trouble. Um, I 
I spend a lot of time waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, bipolar is chronic, and I haven't mastered the art of catching an episode before it overwhelms me. Um, the final term of my master's, the other shoe dropped hard. Um, it was happening again, and I couldn't reach out like I had before. So I ghosted. I didn't finish my thesis. Um, it was easier to start over fresh where nobody would know my history, uh, so I fled to Corvallis. I knew I needed a solid network of helpers if I was going to stand any chance at success here. So my first week of classes, I crept off to CAPS and uh, made myself an appointment and got a referral to a therapist uh, within walking distance. I found out that we have psychiatrists right here on campus instead of an hour bus ride away. Uh, it took a bit, but I was referred to disability access services. Um, it's taken me even longer, but I've tried to make a point to be more open about my mental health, and I've uh, struggled to trust that I can lean on people around me. I've been here for four and a half years and had my fair share of stressors during my tenure, including coursework, teaching, prelims. Um, I started a family, and I've stumbled again many, many times. But each time I've fallen down, I have consistently been met with a helping hand and it's made it so much easier to bounce back each time because of that. It's easier to maintain homeostasis, and I can put my energy into my science and into my family instead of just barely surviving. I have a lot of anger and regret surrounding my story and my journey. Um, I wonder how much time and effort and potential I wasted because I didn't have access to the systems of support I needed right away. I wonder where I would be if my first advisor had offered me something more than a camping mat. I don't know if Oregon State is more prepared than my previous institution, or if it's just been an incredible decade of progress in this regard, or if I'm just better at asking for what I need. But I do know that we have 30,000 students on this campus and a single psychiatrist. I know that graduate students up and down California are striking for cost of living increases. Hmm. I know that our graduate student union is pushing hard against resistance for enhanced uh, grievance procedures. <laughs> I know that graduate student mental health is in crisis. And I know that I am damned lucky to have found a supportive mentor in Dr. Johnson. I have seen so, so many of my graduate student workers struggle in response to unenthusiastic or outright hostile supervisors wasting their time and potential. We know that science benefits from the inclusion of people with diverse backgrounds and identities and viewpoints, but if we actually want that fabulously, wonderfully diverse pool, then we have to just stop paying lip service and we have to take steps to meet students where they are. We have to actively break down barriers to their success. We need to invest resources in making sure they can thrive, and we have to reward faculty who step up and stick out their necks to advocate for their students. Because just like the body needs a host of proteins to maintain homeostasis in times of stress, students need a solid support network in order to thrive. Because life is, life is crazy and yeah, thank you.
Next up is Sam Burns. Sam is a master's student in applied anthropology. His advisor is Dr. Lauren Davis. Sam's inspiration dissemination mentors were Lori Lutz and Daniel Watkins. Please welcome Sam. I want to invite you all to come with me to my field site. It's a tiny, mountainous desert island in the Pacific Ocean just off the coast of Baja, California, Mexico. The island's name is, its, its modern name, given to it by Spanish colonizing explorers, is Isla de Cedros, the island of cedars. But its real name, given to it in time immemorial by its indigenous inhabitants, is Huamalgua, the island of fogs, or the island of the spirits of the ancestors. The island is beautiful, but conditions in the field can sometimes be harsh. It's cold and windy in the morning, it's hot and windy in the afternoon, it's dusty all of the time, except when the fog is heavy enough in the morning to turn that top layer of dust into wet, muddy slop. Every morning, we eat breakfast in town, and then we drive out in our rented F-150 pickup trucks down unmaintained dirt tracks to our dig site. Today, I get into the six foot by three foot hole that I've been digging. I get right there when we arrive, and for the next eight hours, I crouch on the balls of my feet, carefully scraping away paper thin layers of sediment, and precisely recording the location of any artifacts I encounter. This particular hole happens to be on top of an ancient trash pit, and the discarded shells of clams and mussels, which were and still are a major source of food for the inhabitants of the island, are more, they take up more volume in this hole than the dirt does. So shells can tell us a lot of things. They can give us a lot of knowledge. They can tell us about where, what people were eating, what kinds of offshore environments people were using, we can even analyze the ratios of different isotopes in the shells to infer what the climate was that, those shell, that the shellfish lived in. But all of that knowledge has to be extracted in the lab, where the shells can be cleaned, identified, counted, weighed, and finally assembled into pretty distribution charts and maps. This means that the excavation process is very boring. After a while, my knees start to hurt, my mind starts to wander, I start to wonder what we're going to have for dinner tonight. I remember that today is my day to have a hot shower. As we get towards the end of the day, I hear my colleagues in the surrounding room, in the surrounding holes, some of whom are in this room, <laughs> I hear them getting ready for the end of the day, finishing up their paperwork, packing up their tools. I start to hurry, because I don't want to keep everybody from dinner. I've been hungry since we got here. <laughs> So I start to hurry. I start scraping through the sediment a little faster. But years of practice keep my eyes focused sharply on that edge of my trowel, even though my mind's wandering. I see a shell. I've already bagged up, I don't even know how many bags of shells today. But there's something about the edge of the shell that catches my eye. It has that telltale regularity that just screams of human creation. Instantly, my mind snaps back into focus. The hustle and bustle of the end of the workday fade away, and my world shrinks down to the edge of my trowel. 
I very carefully continue uncovering this piece of shell. And after a few minutes, it becomes clear what I found. It's a mussel shell fish hook. A fish hook that's big enough to pull a 100-pound sea bass from the depths of the ocean. As I pick this up and hold it in my hand, kneeling there in the dirt, my mind fills with questions. Who made this? What was their name? What was their life like? Was this fish hook a success? Did it give them dinner, or was it a dud? But most importantly, I'm filled with a feeling of connection to this person who lived in this place some 11,000 years before me. This feeling of kneeling in the dirt and feeling a connection to past humans is why I'm an archaeologist in the first place. It's a feeling that I first experienced as a child out behind my family's 19th century farmhouse in rural Michigan, digging through the trash pit that the builders of the house had left. I spent hours there as a kid digging up broken pieces of ceramic and glass, reassembling them into plates and saucers and medicine bottles, and imagining the lives of the people who had lived at this place a century before my parents were even born. To go back to Cedros, some 11,000 years ago, as the last ice age was ending, ice sheets and glaciers were retreating, people arrived on this island, probably by boats. My research team is starting to put together the pieces of their life, but what we can say is that it looks like their culture was deeply focused on the sea. We see shellfish and fish bones, but we don't really see very many hunting implements. We don't see very many terrestrial animals. But what I mostly think about when I'm thinking about the first people to come to Huamalgua is the incredible obstacles they faced and the types of knowledge that were necessary to overcome those obstacles. In an environment like Huamalgua 11,000 years ago, all the things that we take for granted, food, water, shelter, even fire, require the accumulated knowledge of generations. Even this simple fish hook, which is right here, even this simple fish hook, it looks just like a piece of shell that's been shaped. But it is embodied, embedded with so much knowledge. Not only knowledge of how to harvest mussel shells and, and shape them, but knowledge of how to make stone drills to start the process, stone abraders to grind them down, stone hammers to chip out the rough shape. And then it requires knowledge of how to make string from agave fiber. You need a very strong string to catch a 100-pound fish. But that requires knowledge of how to make scraping tools and spindle whirls and all sorts of technology we haven't even started to discover yet. And then you've got to start talking about boats and houses and food storage and food preparation. We haven't even gotten there yet. But all of this knowledge is embedded in this tiny, simple fish hook. And what's really striking is that all that technological knowledge is just the beginning. This fish hook represents a much, much deeper piece of knowledge. The knowledge that half a mile offshore, a couple hundred feet below the surface of the water, in an environment that no human being can directly experience and survive, there are edible fish the size of a human that you can pull up with a properly prepared shell fish hook. So to understand my own journey through knowledge, 
we have to go back to my childhood again. So I was born outside Detroit, Michigan. My parents were members of a very conservative, fundamentalist religious organization whose primary tenets of faith were a rejection of worldly knowledge and an isolation from worldly influences. When I was eight years old, my parents followed the doctrine of the church and moved my family to a small farm in rural Michigan. They didn't send my eight siblings and I to school, but we didn't really homeschool because all knowledge was suspect. We, we didn't believe in all the usual suspects, evolution, vaccines, but it went much further than that. If it wasn't in the Bible, we didn't believe it. That meant electrons, neutrons, even bacteria. All knowledge came through the church and was never to be questioned or examined. Even as a young kid, I was never happy with that. I was filled with a deep curiosity about the world around me, a curiosity that was fed by my adventures digging through the trash pit behind our house. Despite the rules, I found one escape from the intellectual claustrophobia, our local public library. The, the church taught that parents are supposed to preview anything their children read, but with nine children and a farm, my parents quickly gave up trying to police the massive stacks of books that I would check out. <laughs> so I read everything I could about history and archaeology and geology. Much of what I was reading was directly challenging what I was being taught at home and in the church. And so from a very young age, I had to begin grappling with issues of evidence authority, and how to weigh diametrically opposed worldviews to come to my own conclusions. By the time I was 17, I had decided that I was going to pursue this wherever it took me. But without a high school diploma, it was very difficult for me to find universities that would give me a chance. But I did find one. Uh, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem had an international program and they would accept students without diplomas. So without my parents' knowledge or consent, I applied. <laughs> and uh, to my great surprise, I got in. So I sold my cow and my guitar. <laughs> and a month before my 18th birthday, I got on an airplane for the first time in my life and flew to Jerusalem. That year changed everything. For the first time in my life, I met people from different backgrounds with different philosophies and different life experiences. I met anarchists and atheists, Orthodox Jews, conservative Muslims, scientists, historians, and yes, archaeologists. My roommates that year later said that they would count how many times a day I would say, I can't believe I'm here. <laughs> I spent the entire year walking around in a kind of daze. It wasn't all fun. Uh, I was poor the entire year. I often struggled to afford food. I got very good at finding free food events on campus. That's a skill that serves me well as a graduate employee. <laughs> uh, and then there's a geopolitical situation. Uh, the day after I arrived, Terrorists bombed the cafeteria of Hebrew University, uh, killing my advisor and nine other people. 
Later that year, Mike's place, a bar that I hung out at frequently was bombed. A bus that I rode almost every day down to the market was bombed. I also felt alone all the time, despite being surrounded by people for the first time in my life. My parents had taken my choice to leave home as a personal attack and began cutting me out of their lives. At the end of that year, I didn't really know what to do next. I didn't really have money to continue an education. I didn't have the knowledge as a first-generation college student of how to navigate academia. And most importantly, I didn't have that all-important high school diploma. So over the next decade and a half, I kept going day after day, as we all do. And eventually, I earned a GED and a community college certificate and a bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan and a master's degree from the University of Cambridge. But this whole time, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And that was still off, out of reach for me because I couldn't afford a field school. But eventually, in 2014, a friend of mine who was on a, a very understaffed position, a very understaffed project that was in kind of an emergency, uh, got me a job on a salvage excavation in Michigan. I went there, worked for a couple weeks, and did well enough to get asked back to the next job, and the next, and the next. And before I knew it, I was an archaeologist doing regulatory archaeology at sites all around the country. Here's a few of them, not all of them. As I started doing this work, I started asking questions. I started to, to become really fascinated by the question of how and when humans first arrived on this continent. So that's when I sent an email to Dr. Lauren Davis, who encouraged me to apply to the program that I'm in. And that's where we, hear, where we are now. So how has this journey through knowledge shaped what I do? Well, it turns out that knowledge is central to everything that I do, to all of my roles. As a philosopher, I ask questions about what knowledge is, if it's even possible, how it's acquired, how it's built. As an archaeologist, I study the knowledge that past humans held, but I also generate new knowledge here in the present about our past, our shared past. As an anthropologist, I study how our field operates and how histories of exclusion and racism and colonialism have resulted in a skewed knowledge, a kind of purified and sanitized knowledge that does not do justice to the true richness of the human experience. As an educator and teacher, I, of course, share knowledge with my students, but I also teach them and share skills of how to, how to assess knowledge, how to explore it on your own, how to generate new knowledge on your own. And finally, as an activist, I fight the unnecessary barriers that we have set in front of the pursuit of knowledge, whether that means fighting cultures of harassment and abuse within academia, or fighting for better funding and more just priorities in our public education systems. So in short, my entire career is about knowledge. And it's what I like to, to, to think of it as knowledge justice. What I mean by that is a world in which knowledge, its pursuit, its generation, its value is available to all and is put towards building a more just and equitable future.
So that was where my speech was going to end, but I'd like to take just one more minute of your time. So I almost withdrew from this event tonight, and I'd like to talk for a second about why. Um, but first, I want to recognize the inspiration dissemination folks. They understood that they were asking us to share some deeply personal stories, and they took the time to get to know us and to build a relationship of trust before they did that. I think the graduate school could learn a lot from that example. My first interaction with the graduate school on the content of my speech was a request to censor the line about fighting cultures of harassment and abuse within academia and to wrap it in layers of distancing and conditional language. I understand that the intent of that ask was to protect the reputation of the institution but its impact was very different. One thing I didn't really talk about is my history of surviving child abuse and the PTSD that that has given me. And the impact of that ask was felt by me very differently. And I would like to ask the graduate school to deeply consider what it means to ask a survivor of abuse to censor the word abuse from their story so that you can use it for marketing. But, so instead of withdrawing, we decided to expand this stage a little bit. This is a very privileged stage. And only certain kinds of stories get told on this stage. But as you leave here tonight, some of my friends and allies have some stories available in the lobby as you leave. Stories that provide more context to higher education. Stories that tell a little bit more about what actually goes on beyond these true and important stories that you're hearing on the stage. So I'd like to ask you all to take the time to engage with those stories as you leave. And I'd also like to request that my story not be shared without this end portion. Thank you. Our final speaker for this evening is Barbara Speaker. She is a PhD candidate in integrative biology and is advised by Dr. Bruce Mangi. ASL to English interpretation is provided by Deb Croft and Haleen Anderson. Her inspiration dissemination mentors were Heather Forsyth and Lillian Paget Cobb. Please welcome Barbara to the stage. For listeners at home who could not attend the event in person, the beginning of Barbara Speaker's presentation was silent with captions on the screen, as Barbara's native language is American Sign Language. For podcast purposes, we've recorded these captions for you. For many years, I've been a scuba diver, diving in many places around the Americas. Underwater, I have seen many mysterious and intriguing animals and seaweeds. I vividly remember snorkeling in the Bahamas during college, the coral teeming with life, pink anemones squirming, ethereal jellyfish pulsating, purple sea fans swaying, and majestic six-foot groupers gliding. Years later, I returned to the Bahamas, and to my disappointment, the reef was gone. All that was left was gray sand, 
dead white corals, and empty water. The area was full of short brown seaweed overgrowing everything. In just a few short years, everything had changed. No one had to tell me it was the result of human action. I knew. So now that you've had a little taste of receiving information through visual means the way I do, reading, captioning, and watching signing, we do have interpreters here to provide the ASL uh, to English translation for those who don't know American Sign Language. So I'll have the interpreters turn on the audio for you now. So returning to that stark contrast of my experience in the Bahamas, that was what ignited my passion to pursue my studies in marine science further. It's when I went to graduate school. But you should first know that I grew up in a city that has one of the largest populations of deaf people in the United States, about 50,000 of us. I grew up in a place where I was truly normal. Many even many people who are not deaf in the city I grew up in are able to use basic ASL. I'm deaf, my family is deaf, I went to a school for the deaf growing up, and was surrounded by people who sign. I always had full access to information in ASL. It wasn't until I left my childhood home of Rochester, New York to attend grad school in Boston that I had my first experience of being in an auditory world where my deafness was suddenly glaringly apparent. In academia, I often missed small yet relevant conversations among my peers and professors. I couldn't often participate in seminars or access videos that weren't captioned. Of course, we had interpreters, but my interpreter, the interpreters were never the experts in my field that would be required to facilitate highly technical discussions of marine science or represent me well to my college, colleagues or be able to meaningfully interpret the content of my courses. The pieces that I was missing over time amounted to a gaping hole of information that I scrambled to mad lib in my own time. It was exhausting. My blazing flame of inner curiosity began to flicker. I knew I could not be alone in struggling to access something as basic and humane as information. Then during my PhD journey, I found myself often venting to a deaf colleague and dear friend, Dr. Alicia Wooten, who was also a PhD candidate at that time. And she was sharing many experiences similar to mine. In 2016, we decided to attend the Deaf Academic Conference in Copenhagen, Denmark. There, hundreds of deaf researchers and educators from all over the world gathered to share not only our research, but also our experience as deaf academics in a hearing-dominated space. There were so many different sign languages going on at the conference because, of course, each country has their own distinct sign language, sign language. But in spite of that language barrier, we still found ways to communicate and connect. One night, as the conference was drawing to a close, Alicia and I looked at each other and immediately knew exactly what the other was thinking. We wanted to create a space similar to the conference here in the US where deaf academics in all the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math, could find each other, network, and collaborate. We wanted to create a space where STEM resources in American Sign Language could be found, news, events, resources, and we wanted to bring about, ultimately, the creation of high-quality STEM topics and content in American Sign Language by deaf people. Basically, we wanted to foster curiosity and spark wonder in our community and beyond. That's when Atomic Hands was born.
we knew from our personal experience, sitting in front of our commuter, computers, staring countless research articles in the face, in this sea of words and sentences, we sensed that something was amiss. Somehow we had lost ourselves in STEM. We had lost our voice. Our physical presence was missing. We believe that STEM topics are best conveyed through people, through our native language, ASL. Using video also allows us to discuss STEM topics in a way that provides a face behind the research. People can see that we're not just scientists, we're ordinary citizens just like everyone else. We just love STEM and we care about our living planet. Additionally, ASL as a highly visual spatial language uses multiple parts of a signer's body at the same time to convey messages. So mouth movements, eyebrow movements, body shifts, tone, the use of space to represent three-dimensional concepts and many other features. When expressed well, people can not only see the concepts readily in their head, but also then incorporate and embody the ideas as they discuss them and make them their own. Using the visual spatial benefits of ASL, we put an emphasis on playing with the language creatively when crafting our messages. This creative language play allows STEM topics to come to life in a clear and visually appealing way. We began to create STEM videos on a wide range of topics. We've invited our viewers to participate in weekly challenges to lead more environmentally friendly lifestyles. We've made videos showing different STEM terms and concepts in an engaging way. We regularly still share just STEM-related fun facts or highlight famous deaf STEMists of the past, Thomas Edison, for example. We also do live interviews with current deaf STEMists of the present. All of our videos are captioned in English to provide accessibility for people whether or not they know ASL. Ever since we started Atomic Hands, I cannot count how many times people of all ages, I just watched them light up, sharing that same excitement that I had in my childhood, finally accessing and being able to comprehend STEM topics in our native language, ASL. Through our work, I actually saw a 75-year-old man walk past a pop bottle that was discarded on the side of the road, and then when he thought of our video, he turned back around and picked it up to go and recycle it or the 12-year-old girl who couldn't wait to tell us, thank you for making me realize that science is so much fun. And so many of our viewers who said that they wished that they just had access to our content when they were young because they would have chosen STEM fields or at least not reacted with fear and disgust at seeing a STEM topic. Communication is not trivial. It is a powerful catalyst, turning thought into progress. It allows us to discuss, grow, and change together as a society. Communicating so that all may understand, be it in American Sign Language or any other language, academically or conversationally, allows people to keep pace with changes to our society and the environment. So parallel to my work with Atomic Hands, I've been studying rocky intertidal kelps. These are the seaweeds that you'll find in the rocky area where the land and the sea come together. 
this is an area that is particularly uh, responsive to changes in the environment as well as to human actions. And one particular oceanographic pattern called El Nino, that's a cycle that happens every three to seven years, and it will cause surface, warmers, surface waters in the uh, ocean to become warmer than usual. However, our planet is now warming up, which could cause El Nino events to become more frequent and or more intense. And because the phenomenon of El Nino is known to be very destructive to kelp communities, my research looks specifically at how the effects of El Nino on intertidal kelp communities changes across time, and also whether or not there might be some environmental factors, such as temperature, or nutrients in the water, or wave action, that might amplify or mitigate these destructive effects. This is a pressing concern because kelps provide a massive life support system for us, more than most of us know. Kelps in the ocean absorb carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, for example. They also provide food, as well as habitat, for our favorite sea creatures. And we find them in many commercial products. They're used primarily as emulsifying agents in everything from food to pharmaceuticals to cosmetics. So in an effort to answer my research questions, I went out on the rocks every spring and summer for the last six years, collecting data on the kelp populations. And I invited anyone who would come to join me, family, friends. This is my mom. She's a math teacher. She actually came out to join me in 2014 for the first time. Now, you have to understand exactly what my research entails. She had to get up at like three in the morning, drive anywhere from an hour and a half to four hours to get to our field sites, suit up in these bulky rubber field clothes and boots, stumble along through the dark, falling over slippery rocks for the hundredth time, finally to just get to the field site, only to step on an anemone and be squirted in the face be soaked by the frigid Pacific Ocean, and then spend the next four or five hours doing the back-breaking labor of bending over, measuring these slimy brown kelps. You would think she'd have been done after day two, or at least after year two. But to my surprise, my mom loved the experience. She loved seeing what I was up to. She loved contributing to science and being a part of, of a larger effort to protect our planet. And most importantly, she loved learning about the ocean. She loved learning about all the intricate details of the rocky intertidal system that I was working in. Every year, she couldn't wait to go back to her family and friends at home and tell them all the different things that she had learned. My mom came to help me with my field research every single year without fail. <laughs> The urgency of our responsibility to the environment is on a scale that is unfathomable to most of us. We are grappling now with how our actions today will be shaping our home a hundred years from now. We are in the midst of a seemingly massive problem, and it isn't people's ability or even their desire to be involved that's missing. It's the connection. Humans are social beings. We seek to connect, to belong. Connection elicits optimism and promotes a strong desire to take action. Make the time to connect with people. Connect with people within our own circles and beyond. 
connect through listening, empathizing, involving, and educating each other. Start a conversation. Together, we will naturally come to understand that we are each other's purpose. We will come to understand and appreciate and cherish our environment for exactly what it is, a home for each of us and all of us. Thanks. Barbara was our last speaker. And before we end the night, I just want to say thank you one more time to everyone who helped put together Grad Inspire and to all of you who showed up and supported them in their talks and who support us every day. If you were a host or a presenter tonight, uh, please stand up and let everyone clap for you and thank you one more time for sharing your stories. So we have this place reserved until nine, and I was told, quote, that there is hella beer left. So please stay and hang out and have some more beer and food if there's any food left, I have no idea. Um, and get to know some of the people around you, hear more stories, thank our speakers. Thank me, I've been upstage all night. Um, um, yeah. Thank you all, and have an inspiring rest of your week. After processing the event, here are some final thoughts from the Inspiration Dissemination team. As this event was centered around diversity, accessibility, and honesty, we tried to be inclusive, but we want to own up to the fact that we still missed the mark. On days of events like this, individuals' seemingly harmless decisions about feedback, lighting, and audiovisuals can have huge impacts on the experiences of those involved. That being said, we're sorry for the things that did not meet reasonable standards for inclusion and pledge to learn from our mistakes for future events. Is that how you wanted it to end? Thanks for listening. <laughs> XOXO, <laughs> inspiration dissemination. <laughs> That's definitely going in. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow this show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.